Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, Episode 56, Raising the Stakes. Last time, the Japanese forces of the 19th Division had been victorious in pushing the Russians off of Cheng Kufang and Cheng Chaofang. Yet, according to the Russians, this was neutral territory. No one was supposed to be on it. But that was immaterial now. Russia had been attacked. It was time to right the situation. And the man to do this was General Grigory Stern, a veteran of the Spanish Civil War. And though he was being given, as the new commander of the 39th Corps of the Red Banner Far Eastern Army, his normal allotment of men, he was also to receive the 32nd, 39th, and 40th Infantry Divisions, as well as the 2nd Mechanized Brigade. These men would help him recapture Russia's honor. But he would not be getting them all at once. Stern estimated that it would not be until late August before he could assemble them all before him and deliver an overwhelming counteroffensive. But with Moscow awaiting his report of victory and the clever but equally untrustworthy Japanese before him, Stern realized it would be imprudent and dangerous to wait that long. So, on August 1st, he launched his first attack with what he had. That morning of August 1st, some 3,000 men of the 40th Division were launched, rather clumsily, at the heights of Chengku Feng. And as the attack was straightforward, so too was the defense. Artillery was used, as well as explosives, and organized rifle firing. The Russians never reached the top and lost a lot of men in the attempt. But this attack showed General Nakamura, the commander of the Chosen Army responsible for this area, that Sutaka, the originator of this test of Russian intentions, had been right. The Russians would be coming back to take the hill. So the general released the whole of the 19th Division to support the defense of Chengku Feng. The next two days also saw Russian attacks on the hill which equally failed, as they had suffered heavy casualties in the process. But now the Japanese were starting to suffer too, especially Colonel Sato's 75th Regiment. Yet, as Stern received more men, he fed them to the hill of Chankufeng. But now that his units were coming under his command with their support units, such as fighters, bombers, and heavy artillery, they too were used, and especially of the artillery, they outvastly numbered the Japanese. But the 19th Division caught a break in this escalating conflict. The shells coming at them and the bombs being dropped on them were not as accurate as they could have been. Bad weather had come to the hilltop and the surrounding area. But those bombs and shells were having some effect on the Japanese. Nakamura realized the mistake it was that Japanese fighters and bombers were not allowed in the area, nor did they have enough heavy guns to resist the Russian ground forces and take out the Russian artillery. What's more, it now occurred to Nakamura and his staff that if they were to be seriously counterattacked, their position was not tactically sound. They controlled the heights, which was plainly accessible to enemy aircraft and artillery. If they stayed thus, it would be suicide. And it was clear that more and more Soviet troops were coming into the area, 
It was only a matter of when the Russians would use their numbers to swing around the heights and thus cut off the Japanese from any kind of withdrawal. Something had to be done. To the aggressive Sutaka, the answer was obvious, and he actually proposed it on August 2nd, three days into the conflict, to chosen or Korean headquarters. It was they who should attack first with a flanking maneuver north and east of Lake Kasan and get in behind the Russian forces. But that would take the Japanese troops enough miles into Soviet territory to make it plain who was the aggressor. Chosen HQ might have said yes, but Army General Headquarters in Tokyo said flat out no. If they expanded, the Russians would expand as well. And for right now, Japan could not afford this. The bulk of their forces were tied down in China at the moment. But that was just the beginning of the no that emanated from Tokyo. Knowing what the leaders in Tokyo were dealing with, or rather, who they were dealing with, further orders came that expressly forbade the 19th from expanding the area they held. There would be no flanking of any kind. No calling in reinforcements, nor could they call on any air power. Sutaka was reminded that this was, after all, a test, Colonel Inada's test, to see what the Russians would do. So their job was to wait and see what transpired. And what happened was, the Russians kept coming. They kept losing, many men in fact, but so too were the Japanese, even in victory after victory. In fact, the pressure on the men of the 19th was becoming so desperate that the leaders of the Kwangtan army drew up plans to attack the Russians nearby Chengkufeng as a way to draw away the Soviets. But that was dashed by the detailed orders from Tokyo. The leaders in Tokyo wanted this settled diplomatically. Their war was in China. After all, honor had been satisfied by the night attack at the end of May that got them the hill in the first place. So as the young men on both sides fought and died on the heights, the older men in Japan argued back and forth about withdrawing the 19th completely. Even Vice Minister Tojo Hideke wanted the men out of there as it served no purpose, but only brought potential danger. Still, the arguments continued. A decision could not be reached. Whereas in Moscow, the reverse held true. Such is the advantage of one-man rule. The Japanese soldiers were to be pushed off Chengkufeng and the line re-established, as the Russians recognized it. So the diplomats were put in a room together. Ambassador Shigemitsu met with Litvinov in Moscow. The Japanese representative suggested that both sides stop fighting pull back, and let a joint commission decide things. The Russian, knowing Stalin would never go for this, said the affair would be over when the Japanese troops left Russian territory. Shigemitsu informed Tokyo of his lack of progress. But this report came in on August 5th, the same day word was delivered to the Army General Headquarters that the Russians had been intensely bombing and shelling the heights for the last 48 hours while building up massive forces to the east. It was only a matter of time before they, in their insurmountable numbers, came at Chengkufeng. And then the Russians did come, 
starting on August 6th. The problem for them was, as Colonel Inada had factored this into his probing plan, that the geography favored the defenders. Due to the layout, the Russians had to attack along the northwest and or the southwest approaches. There, the land was at least flat enough for men to climb or run up, but the tanks couldn't make it. So, as many men as Stern threw into the crucible, the Japanese were able to hold off the boots on the ground, handing the Russians massive casualties, while suffering some themselves. Yet the Russians came on, from the 6th to the 10th of August. It seemed that the Russians were equally desirous of not expanding this conflict, so kept their men only on those two approaches of Chenku Fang. But Stalin had other weapons as well. Using the state newspapers, Russia declared openly that a state of war all but existed between the two countries. Journalists from the world over were encouraged to either visit or at least write about the fighting. Meanwhile, the papers in Japan barely mentioned the conflict. And the Russians kept coming. The Japanese were winning, but being whittled down. Something had to give as Colonel Sato's 75th Regiment suffered almost 50% casualties. But, not ready to give in just yet, the Japanese had reinforcements come in from Manchukuo. The 19th Artillery Division, with its 75mm guns, earmarked for China, were being sent to Chengkufeng. What's more, the young males within Manchukuo were told to prepare themselves to report for military service. Yet the Russians kept coming. On August 8th, Japanese intelligence intercepted a report from Stern that said he expected his casualties to double, but that he would keep fighting. Back in Tokyo, the debate continued, but no decision could be reached. Then, on August 10th, the Russians, taking massive casualties, finally captured the southern corner of the height of Chengkufeng. The Japanese reformed a new defensive line, but the Russians were making progress. Then something unexpected happened. One of the men, Colonel Terada, who had served on Inada's operations section, which had been pushing for a larger war with Russia, returned from the front to say that an immediate withdrawal was needed if any of the 75th Regiment was to be saved. First of all, the admission, or almost admission, of a potential defeat shocked everyone, as it was intended to, and that it came from one of Inada's circle pushed the men in Tokyo into action. If a satisfying military answer could not be found, then the resolution had to be diplomatic. So Foreign Minister Igaki sent instructions to the Japanese ambassador, ordering the following. An immediate resolution was needed that Japan was willing to pull back to the line of July 29th, that is, before the night attack that captured Chengkufeng, that the Russians' interpretation of the border would be recognized, and that, if needed, the Russian troops would be pulled back one kilometer from the Chengkufeng and Xiaochaofeng line, and that the Japanese troops would not enter these areas again. This might have been hard for the proud military men to write, but it was much easier 
for the ambassador to offer it up to the Soviet foreign minister. What's more, Shigemitsu started out with the hardest part, the one-kilometer pullback. Litvinov jumped at this, and together they set the ceasefire to start at noon the next day, August 11th. The Japanese diplomats in Moscow celebrated, but this was short-lived. The Russians were still working from a position of strength and still playing their game. During that same afternoon, Shigemitsu got a call from Litvinov saying that it was not necessary for the Japanese to pull back, and what's more, why not move up the ceasefire to, say, midnight of that night, August 10th. The lightheartedness of the Japanese officials increased, and Tokyo was relieved that their men would not have to suffer the humiliation of a forced withdrawal. Honor was satisfied. And of course, there would be a joint border commission, and of course, they would be unable to decide anything, but they didn't need to. The Russians decided everything for everyone. On August 11th, General Stern himself went to the area with a Japanese counterpart and oversaw the separation of forces, the most tricky part. And now that the fighting was over, Japanese Army General Headquarters ordered the 19th Division back west on their side of the Taiyuman River. This took some doing as the wounded had to be moved as well. But when the last Japanese soldier crossed the river during the afternoon of August 13th, which was now made the de facto border, Russian troops took the heights of Changkufeng, Changfang, and several other hills. The Japanese nearby looked on with disgust, but there wasn't anything they could do. The same went for their leaders in Tokyo. But what no one knew could not know was that this new line between the two powers would cost them both much in the near future as war came to Europe and this part of Asia. Not that either side was anywhere near honest in counting up its dead or wounded from these operations, but best guess is that Japan lost at least 526 men with an additional 914 wounded. The numbers are probably higher. As for the Russians, where bad news was not well received, the numbers are even less trustworthy. Still, the numbers rounding down is about 408 dead and 2,807 wounded, yet they now held the heights. Pulling back a bit, the entire reason for the Cheng Kufeng operation, besides pride and honor, was to test the Russians in the face of Japan's Wuhan offensive in China. And although the Kuangtung's Army 2nd Air Group did not participate in the fighting over the bordered heights, it had been held back for prudence sake, which in part gave Chiang Kai-shek the time he needed to pull out of the Wuhan area and destroy the dikes along the Yellow River, which slowed the Japanese even more. By the time the invaders reached Hankou on October 25, 1938, Chiang Kai-shek's government was now even further inland at Chongqing. This, of course, made it harder for the Soviets to get him supplies, but at least he and his still existed to remain in the fight. So the Japanese found themselves, once again, unable to end the war in China. What's more, their one million men 
would remain inland, fighting there instead of elsewhere, where Tokyo's main need would be lands that held resources scarce to the lands they held at the moment. So Tokyo had its answer in relation to the stubbornness of Soviet intention in guarding their land. That their men of the 19th Division had paid a terrible price for this knowledge, well, that was how the great game went. As for the Soviets, this was their first serious test post-Stalin's purges. Stern and his men certainly had not been brilliant in their tactics, but had shown themselves resolute, a desirous trait in soldiers. This did not go unnoticed by the U.S. military attaché in China, then Colonel Joseph Stilwell. He wrote back to Washington, quote, The Russian troops appear to advantage, and those who believe the Red Army is rotten would do well to reconsider their views, unquote. Yet those views would not change when the Second Great War broke out a year later. The British, French, Japanese, and most importantly, German governments stuck to their belief that Russian forces were impressive on paper, but not on the ground. Yet, within some of the more courageous circles in Japan, they timidly acknowledged that this test of Soviet intention could have completely backfired if the Soviet Union had escalated the border conflict. Did Japan even have a plan if such a thing had happened? The answer was no. They just assumed that the determined men of the Imperial Army would have engaged the enemy until they begged for mercy. Not exactly the detailed response a modern-day army could work from. What's more, the Kuangtung Army took away the wrong lesson entirely. Those within the leadership circles in Manchukuo were now more determined than ever that they, and only they, could defend this land from the USSR. And once the war with China was won, they would find the means to bring the final clash to fruition, without limitations, political or military. And so, in order to prepare for that day, those that supported the Kuangtan army in Tokyo maneuvered to have the responsibility of defending the border area taken away from the chosen army and transferred to them on October 8, 1938. A reckoning would come. They were right, of course. It just wouldn't end the way they envisioned.